Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today we're going to hear part four of my series covering my book, God in the Frontier, The Impact of the 19th Century Burned Over District and the Psychology of Faith. But before we do, there's just a couple of things I want to cover. First is that because chapters 4 and 5 are both a little shorter than the previous three chapters, I've combined them into this one episode here. And one of the chapters focuses on the Oneida community and their sexual practices. So if that is something that you find offensive or you have some younger listeners, please keep that in mind before you continue on further. Other than that, please consider liking, rating, or reviewing No Character Limit to help spread the word of this podcast. If you would like to make a donation, as always, based on your donation, you're allowed to get a free PDF copy of either God in the Frontier or my previous work, which is The Forging of Humanity. Remember, if you do donate and get a PDF copy, there are a lot of images that I take a lot of time to choose and add that really bring a lot of additional context that you just don't get in podcast format. Moving to today's episode, like I already said, I'm going to discuss the Oneida community as well as the start of an idea called Millerism. So that's going to be the focus of the two chapters today in part four. And I'm not going to hold this up any longer. I'm excited to get into this. So let's get started and please enjoy part four of God in the Frontier. Chapter 4 Selfishness and Selflessness at Oneida Part 1 Discovering Perfection So Charles Grandison Finney was a man who pushed the conservative boundaries of Protestantism, which was already a far more liberal branch of Christianity when compared to, say, the Catholic Church. And while more conservative Protestants cautioned over the consequences of being more emotionally provocative and lowering the barriers to entry on who could rightfully consider themselves a true Christian, the euphoria over what Christianity could be was just too enticing to abstain from in a frontier of possibilities. Finney continued to travel across New York State and even into New England, the heart of Calvinist country, where he continued his multi-day-long revivalist sessions, and he converted non-believers and brought in renewed excitement to Christianity, something that the traditional, more conservative Calvinists just could not do. And so, in 1831, a 20-year-old lawyer, fresh out of Dartmouth, attended one of Finney's revivals in Vermont at the urging of his religious mother. 
She worried for her non-religious son, whose name was John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes came from a wealthy family, his father's cousin being none other than the United States President, Rutherford B. Hayes. Despite the piety of his mother, Noyes didn't take too much seriously overall, and he was pretty critical of religion. Even Finney's revival session didn't make much of an impression on Noyes, but shortly afterward, it was said that he suffered a feverish cold which led him to think of death and to humble himself before God. And suddenly, Noyes was an irreversible Christian, and like Finney, he left the law profession to dedicate his entire life to God, and he then enrolled in the Andover and Yale Divinity School. Once again, a sober, secular man of the law had been emotionally overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit, and he never looked back. But Noyes didn't have it easy over the following 17 years after his conversion in 1831. The influence of the Second Great Awakening had also gotten a hold of Noyes, and he would receive similar pushback as Finney for his practices that were not aligned with the more conservative values of the local Protestants. Like Finney, he decided that the traditional ways of Calvinism didn't suit him, and that it was up to him to forge an entirely new way to worship. At the heart of Noyes' beliefs was the idea of Christian perfectionism. It was a concept that had been explored and discussed by both Catholics and Protestants alike, particularly by Finney. Like all concepts in Christianity, there were manifold viewpoints on perfectionism, but generally it was referencing a concept about how or when mankind can exist without sin. And the general Christian consensus was that this was not something living humans could collectively achieve together. The traditional view was that mankind would always be living in sin, and that if Christian perfectionism did exist, it would only be after death. But revivalists like Charles Finney turned the consensus on its head, and he preached that people can obtain a life without sin. Perfectionism in this lifetime. Indeed, when Finney preached, he believed that the millennial would occur at the same time as Christian perfectionism because he believed that they were one in the same thing. So, potentially influenced by Finney, Noyes decided that he was living proof of Christian perfectionism while he was at Yale, and because of that, he was denied his ordination for making such a bold claim. But this didn't stop noise. He traveled across New York and New England preaching his new style of Christianity, but he did not find the fevered following of Charles Finney. He actually came close to a mental breakdown along the way, where he lost his very first follower, a woman that he had loved, who left him for another man. He returned to Vermont and began again. He even enlisted the support of new followers, including his own family members, much like the public universal friend. 
Noise and his followers practiced even more controversial followings than just Christian perfectionism. And these concepts that they practiced made the public universal friend and Charles Finney look modest by comparison. Scandals started to surround Noise's congregation, often involving his stances on intimate relationships, where it was claimed people were allowed to have sex outside of marriage. As his community grew, the gossip on what was happening under Noise's leadership became so shocking that he was indicted for adultery in Vermont. So now that he was in trouble with the law, Noise, who was now considered a true prophet among his community of 45 followers, he moved the entire group from Vermont to what he called the Promised Land in New York. He even believed that their trip mirrored that of the Israelites under Moses. The relative proximity to Canada was also considered in the case legal trouble continued to follow them into the New York frontier for their eccentric practices. But the goal for Noyes and his followers was to create nothing less than heaven on earth, believing Christian perfectionism applied to them all. It had been 50 years since the public universal friend had taken their followers to the New York frontier, but both Noyes and the friend believed that they could build a utopia, free from the moral bankruptcy back east, much like what drove the Puritans from the old world to the new. In 1848, Noyes arrived in the burned-over district, settling in Oneida, New York, a town that was named for the proud Haudenosaunee nation, that was bought, bullied, and attacked into leaving this land and settling onto reservations. Chapter 4, Part 2, 19th Century Progressive Socialism Like Charles Finney, Noise wouldn't allow the conservative beliefs of Calvinist Protestantism to hold his vision of divine living back. Once settled in Oneida, it became a captivating destination for miles around, and his following grew by several hundred people within a couple of decades. Noise developed a community-focused socialist style of living where personal possessions were looked down upon and clothing and food were all similar throughout the community. Women who joined the community stepped into a new dimension that contrasted sharply with the world around it. Women shared all responsibilities equally with men, and were not ever required to get pregnant, a choice few husbands of the day would have allowed outside of the community. Furthermore, if a woman did become pregnant, it was not then her responsibility to care for the child once born, but instead it was the responsibility of the entire community. There were caretakers and teachers within the community that would care for all of the children, allowing the mothers to continue to have more independence and the ability to help around the community in her own way. All women wore a short dress and pants that were likely inspired by the native Oneida women of the Haudenosaunee. 
This was at a time where dresses and corsets were essentially mandatory for women across the United States, despite the health risks associated with how restrictive they could be. There have been claims that the Oneida outfit went on to inspire the bloomers that became popular in Seneca Falls, only 70 miles away, and became a symbol for the women's suffrage movement. Initially, Noyes funded the community with his family's wealth, but the hard-working, progressive nature of the community was eventually able to fully fund itself through its industrious innovation. They invented the Victor Mousetrap, the Lazy Susan, and produced large animal traps, chains, silk thread, straw hats, mop sticks, and silverware in such abundance that wealth quickly poured into the community and was shared equitably. They embraced the arts and the sciences. They played music, they shared business ideas, and they felt spiritually as one with God through their Christian perfectionist way of living. One Puck cartoon of the time depicts several scandalized conservative Protestant men pointing at the Oneida community and stating, quote, Oh, dreadful! They dwell in peace and harmony and have no church scandals. They must be wiped out. End quote. But as we shall see, they were not entirely free of scandals, and it went much further than just having sex outside of marriage. Chapter 4, Part 3, Heaven on Earth, Swinging, Statutory Rape, and Eugenics. A revivalist commune that practiced gender equality while producing goods for the capitalistic society that lay around it, while odd, might have been accepted in early 19th century America. But it was Noyes's scandalous beliefs about marriage that could not be tolerated and forever after have continued to provoke fascination and disgust. Countless books and articles have been written about the Oneida community since their inception, and none can help but to mention Noyes's distinctly unique belief of what he called complex marriage. Noyes felt it important to give up the covetous nature of all things, including an exclusive partner, where everyone would live in a communal union with God, believing no one would be excluded from anyone else, including sexually. So Noyes' utopian vision on how to live without sin in perfect harmony with God had a mandatory clause which included this concept of complex marriage, as marriage solely between any couple was considered idolatrous and too possessive for the teachings of the Bible. This was practiced by upwards of 300 people at the height of Oneida's popularity. And while marriages did occur, they were decided by noise personally and were often paired for the benefit of the entire community. But when it came to sex, two consenting partners was all that was needed regardless of marital status. But it came at a cost, particularly for men. 
in the Oneida community to help prevent impregnation from collective random sex, men were not allowed to ejaculate, neither in the woman nor outside of her, except for in the act of procreation. Sort of like General Jack D. Ripper from the movie Dr. Strangelove, Noyes believed ejaculating represented a loss of essence, so even masturbation to the point of release was prohibited for men. So the frustration must have been palatable for the truly devoted. However, pregnancies between two lovers was permitted, naturally provided that they were first approved by Noyes and the committee who decided these matters. Noyes was very particular on the relationships held between members and paid close attention to both those who were becoming too close as well as those who were not close enough. Another of Noyes' community activities was the process of what was called mutual criticism. Any individual could willingly volunteer themselves to be what they said was honestly evaluated by the rest of the community. One outside journalist got to witness a mutual criticism event where the subject of the event got a chance to speak critically about himself and was then followed up by the rest of the community criticizing him, who called him egotistical, insincere, rude, selfish, and stubborn. The event ended with a final criticism from Noise blaming the man for being too selfish with one lover, who was pregnant with his child. Noise's micromanagement of relationships caused more than one couple to leave the community to be together exclusively without Noise inserting himself between them. Yet, there was still enough appeal to Noise's decisions that the community only continued to grow. Introduction into the sexual lifestyle of the Oneida community for children going through puberty could only be described today as predatory. When the younger members became of age, they would be expected to practice sex with chosen elder members. For the boys, they had to have sex with women past the age of menopause to help prevent pregnancy in the case that they accidentally orgasmed and virgin girls were given to the eldest men of the community. Of course, no member of the community was more senior than Noyes himself, in which he regularly helped train 12- and 13-year-old girls to become divinely perfect with God. Age was not the only boundary Noise was willing to cross when it came to sexual relationships, and he often praised the sexual relationship between uncles and nieces. Noise's stance on sex with even closer family members, such as siblings, is lesser known, but Noise did have sisters. Terza Miller, Noise's niece and someone who he regularly had intercourse with was one of the most sexually desired members of the community, and so she earned prestige and power through her sexual openness. Eventually, when the Oneida community decided to dismantle the system of complex marriages, Miller had sex with three separate men on the final day it was practiced. 
Noyes went as far as to start a spiritual eugenics program where he was divinely inspired to breed a more perfect human by choosing couples based on their virtues. In this way, Noyes deduced, he would be able to create an entire race of spiritually superior people that would become immortal. He called it stirpiculture, and Noyes justified his approval or denial on marriages and pregnancies through this unscientific method of eugenics. Criticism mounted within and outside the community as Oneida became less remote and was not the frontier land that it was when it was initially settled. By 1879, Noyes had to flee the community on word that he was soon going to be arrested for the statutory rape that he normalized within his community. Noyes had previously attempted to transfer leadership of the community to his son, but without Noyes at the helm, they struggled to stay a community, just as the Society of Universal Friends struggled at the loss of Jemima Wilkinson. Even before he left the community, pushback on complex marriage was so great that the members were able to force Noyes to allow them to revert back to traditional marriage couples. And so, after 40 years of running his community in Oneida, Noyes found himself on the run in Canada, nearly 70 years old, with only a small circle of devout followers by his side. Despite this loss, he still believed that he could start the community anew in Niagara Falls, Ontario, as he had once before when he left Vermont for Oneida. A new exodus, a new promised land. Christian perfectionism started one more time. He believed he could write for support from the Queen of England, but Noyes never heard back from her. John Humphrey Noyes eventually died in 1886 without ever rebuilding his dream. His body was brought back to be buried at Oneida. Chapter 4 Part 4 Communist Capitalism when Noyes left, the remaining members of the community still felt a strong connection with each other and did not break apart completely, a contrast to the Society of Universal Friends 60 years earlier. Keeping with their progressive and industrious nature, together the Oneida community created one of the first joint stock companies in the United States which allowed members to be stockholders and women to sit on the board of directors. Management had an upper limit in how much money they could make, while the rest was divided amongst the workers. Together, they submerged their community into the sea of capitalism around them by specializing in making silver-plated flatware. They survived both world wars by making everything from ammunition clips to surgical tools to jet engine parts. Their success was so great that by the 1980s, nearly one out of every two pieces of flatware sold in the United States came from the Oneida Community Limited. But the 1990s brought hard times on for the company as globalization increased the pressure of competition. And by 1999, Oneida was facing a buyout by their competitor, Libby. 
In true Oneida fashion, the company resolutely refused to take the generous buyout, and by 2006, Oneida Community Limited faced Chapter 11 bankruptcy. From there, the company continued to exist as it passed under ownership between hedge funds and equity funds, and after a few mergers, the company survived another bankruptcy in 2015. If nothing else from the community survived, the name prevailed, and the umbrella company that was reborn from the ashes of the 2015 bankruptcy was renamed the Oneida Group in 2017. While the Oneida community's history can still be remembered through the company's name, everything that made the company unique, pay caps for management, standing for gender equality, and union-like conditions, was replaced with the standard corporate practices of the 21st century. Today, the Oneida Group is little more than a husk of its former ideals, used for little more than brand recognition. The grounds of the Oneida community can still be visited today by the public. The main home, where they lived, called the Mansion House, has become a National Historic Landmark, and guests can stay the night. Descendants of the members still exist, some of which have looked back on their parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents' experiment to try and piece together what it was that made the community so special. For those who grew up in the mansion house, they have since focused on the positive teachings that the community stood for, a place where a communal society locked arms against the individualism of capitalism embraced by the likes of the Rochester business community. The more radical beliefs of complex marriage and the elders teaching pubescent children on how to have sex were forgotten or left unspoken about, while the more progressive notions of the community were embraced, the equality and power of women, resourcefulness, and the belief in taking care of a community above profit. The lessons and quirks of one man's spiritual awakening from a Charles Finney revival has reverberated through time to the present day. The religious impact of Noyce's concept of Christian perfectionism never truly caught on, and its fissure onto the Christian prism was slight. But this was the strange new world that Finney and other evangelical leaders brought forth in the 19th century. Like the advent of Protestantism in the 16th century, the Second Great Awakening brought forth unintended interpretations that were now considered truths of Christianity. Noise is not just a one-off or an eccentric individual that believed in a form of Christianity that was not true. And in our next chapter, we're going to see how far some people are willing to go to embrace what their idea of Christianity really is. Chapter 5, Cosmos Crumbling, The Birth of Adventism. Part 1, When the Judgment is at Hand. In 
antebellum America, tradition was being upended around every corner, and nowhere more so than within Christianity. We've already seen this with leading figures like the Public Universal Friend in Jerusalem, New York, or Charles Grandison Finney in Rochester, or John Humphrey Noyes in Oneida. The author, Robert H. Abzug, wrote a book about this time called Cosmos Crumbling, American Reform and the Religious Imagination. The title makes a lot of sense because just as today where the fast pace of everything really makes us unsure about what to expect in the future, the fast-paced changes that were happening also in the 19th century seem to only be picking up steam and it could feel like the end of the world was just around the corner. For some, this impending doom was more real than figurative especially after a humble and plain-speaking constable from New York began preaching that he figured out when the end of the world was coming. And he even knew the year, 1843. The man went by the name of William Miller, and he was a deist, but... After surviving the Battle of Plattsburgh, an astonishing American upset during the War of 1812, it brought him to believe that there was truly a higher power that does intervene in the lives of people. A deist believes direct intervention by God didn't occur after the creation of the universe, and it was a well-respected conservative viewpoint held by many Enlightenment-influenced thinkers at the time. Yet, deism didn't feel like enough for Miller after the miraculous victory at Plattsburgh, and so he joined his local Baptist church and shortly after converted fully to Christianity. As a prudent, sober, and well-respected constable, he did not make such a decision lightly. So, when he was challenged on his newfound religious beliefs, Miller studied the Bible closely. He was looking for a deeper meaning himself so that he could feel confident in his beliefs. What Miller did is exactly the sort of thing that Martin Luther and even Charles Finney would have encouraged, a person finding out about Jesus for themselves through the holy text of Christianity. Protestants the world over believe this was the way Christianity was meant to be brought into someone's life. So, Miller found himself pondering the new millennial age that was such a popular topic during the Second Great Awakening. Christians have historically clashed on the interpretation of the millennial, which was generally described as a time period, often interpreted as about a thousand years in length, where a golden age would reign upon the earth. And while many Christian denominations accept millennialism as a fact, the actual length of time, when it will happen, whether it already has happened or not, and whether the second coming of Christ will occur before or after this time period, leaves a lot to debate each denomination confidently stepping in with their particular hue of the prism as the unquestionable truth. This was the sort of division between Christians that the Seneca leader Red Jacket could not square with. 
Charles Finney, like many millennialists of the time, believed that Jesus was coming after the millennial had occurred, while John Humphrey Noyes of the Oneida community believed that the millennial had already occurred hundreds of years ago. After interpreting the Bible for himself, though, William Miller concluded that not only had the millennial not even begun yet, but that Jesus' second coming was to occur at the beginning of it rather than at the end of it. While this belief was not shared by the likes of Finney or Noyes, Miller believed he had found something even more astonishing and had to check his calculations multiple times before he even told a soul. But each time he rechecked his numbers, he came back with the exact same answer, and the implications were profound. Miller discovered that by reading the signs in the Bible, one could pinpoint the very year that the millennial was to begin. And thus, under Miller's personal interpretation, this also meant that he could predict the year of Jesus' second coming. In short, Miller had predicted the end of the world, and it was set to occur in 1843. It was all written plainly there in the Bible, and Miller realized that once it was noticed, that it was impossible not to see. At first, Miller kept his explosive findings to himself when he discovered it in 1818. There were still 25 years before the world ended by the grace of God, which filled him with both a sense of caution and urgency. He struggled with his conscience on whether he should share the news with the world. After all, didn't he have the responsibility to share what the Bible clearly indicated so that as many people could be saved as possible? He ultimately decided that if he were to share this earth-shattering information, that he would wait for a sign from God. He would keep what God had revealed to him private unless he was explicitly asked to share his religious beliefs by another person. Allegedly, within an hour of making this covenant with God, he was asked to fill in as the preacher for his Baptist church. Having risen to the rank of captain in the army and being a constable in his town, he was both a well-respected and humble public servant. So when the first time William Miller preached at his church and he announced that he was able to deduce the end of days that were predicted in the Bible, people were naturally shocked and wanted to hear more. Miller preached rationally and logically about how the world was to end, citing the number 2300 from the Bible and tying it directly to the year 1843. As word spread of his prediction, invitations for him to speak from neighboring towns and states began to pour in. His research and oratory skills were so convincing that soon he was given a license to preach while remaining humble to the cause, modestly proclaiming that such titles were meaningless to him. For each of his assertions, he cited direct evidence from the scripture, which caught the attention of both the well-read and the simple folk alike. 
By the 1830s, over 40 ministers endorsed Miller's findings, which brought him on a road tour, crossing his way through the burned-over district in places like Rochester, Buffalo, and beyond. Miller convinced many Baptists, Episcopalians, Methodists, and other Protestants of his findings, becoming a transdenominational magnet in the same vein as evangelicalism, leading to a growing group of people known as Millerites. In the burned-over district alone, dozens of churches preached Miller's finding, and so, therefore, Miller had now started a new movement. Chapter 5, Part 2, The Wisdom of the Masses Contrary to William Miller himself, Millerites tended to be overtly passionate and emotional in their belief of his prediction, which aligned with similar movements of the Second Great Awakening. His publicist even put out a regular newspaper which was used to inform followers as why any criticisms that arose over Miller's findings were inaccurate. Miller's tent revivals constantly filled every seat, even when he traveled as far west as Ohio. But as 1843 drew nearer, the Millerites faced increased public attention and scrutiny often described as being blatheringly insane or depicted wearing snow-white robes waiting for their ascension to heaven. Millerites tended to be pushy and emotional, convinced in their piety that they were helping others realize the fact, at least as far as they were concerned, that the judgment was at hand. The astronomer who sees an asteroid heading for Earth can be forgiven for sounding a little pushy on getting as many people into the bunker as possible. Millerites knew their urgency came from a divine place, and that it was their duty to help prepare as many others for their ascension into heaven as they could before that fateful year. Despite their good-faith enthusiasm, many people they encountered were still skeptical or even hostile towards the Millerites. Some churches went as far as to start giving ultimatums to the Millerites in their congregation. They either needed to drop Millerism or leave their church, and many chose the latter. Intentional or not, William Miller had forced people to demonstrate their faith in his divine prediction, particularly when he narrowed Christ's second coming down to the month of March, 1843. As people continued to be driven from their churches for teaching about the Second Advent, as it began to be called, Millerites began to hold meetings on how to best prepare for the end times on their own. Miller's absence from the initial meeting left other prominent believers to add their contributions on how to prepare for this momentous occasion. Some powerful Millerites began calling for Protestants to leave their respective churches for not embracing the Second Advent, even as Miller himself refused to leave his own church. People began to prove their faith by competing on who could demonstrate it 
most blindly. Thousands of people began selling their possessions, ignoring their farms, and all other manner of refusing to prepare for a date beyond the second advent of Christ to demonstrate that they truly believed in the birth of the new millennial. And when the Great March Comet appeared in the heavens in 1843, it was considered all but certain that Miller had read the signs correctly. Leading up to that fated year, Miller had been doggedly preaching around the country, selling his book. But as 1843 rolled around, Miller ended his speaking tour and returned to his home, and he awaited the end of the world. Up to 100,000 followers waited in groups or in their own homes, knowing each day could be their last of their mortal lives, but also the beginning of eternity. But as March of 1843 turned to April and the Great March Comet faded, the spell that the Millerites had been under began to waver. Miller himself was not concerned, stating that the precise day was not known, and it was still only a matter of time until Jesus came. But Millerites began to feel more restless, and doubt began to creep at the edges of the movement. But one Millerite, Samuel Snow, became center stage when he claimed that he had found an error in Miller's calculations by fault of using the wrong calendar. Snow announced the new date using the correct calendar, and it was very specific, October 22nd, 1844. At first, Miller didn't validate Snow's findings, but as time continued to creep forward without a second advent, Snow's theory looked more and more enticing until, at last, Miller embraced it. Miller called Snow's new date a glory that he didn't see before. Once again, Millerites welcomed this new date pregnant again with hope, and once again they sold their property and stopped tending their fields with confidence that this time they would not have to weather the upcoming winter. Chapter 5, Part 3, A Judgment Deferred How people processed what happened next, remembered to history as the Great Disappointment, varied widely. Here was a group of Christians spanning multiple denominations, some of which even went as far as to abandon their church that collectively believed in the second advent of October 22nd, 1844, which never came to be. A true and genuine faith community had arisen from Miller expressing his humble findings of the Bible over 25 years earlier. Miller did not force his belief onto anyone, and he was ordained and supported by dozens of respectable church leaders. 
while Miller spoke with plain, humble, and logical reason, the topic which he spoke about was as intense and emotionally provocative as it came. The emotional fervor of the Second Great Awakening allowed Charles Finney to pressure his congregations to condemn non-believers. So when a man claimed that he could predict the second coming of Jesus Christ down to the year or even to the day, many Christians had their faith challenged even further. Here was a man endorsed by many respectable leaders across a variety of denominations, telling people that the world was coming definitively to an end. For those who bought into this idea, the world must have looked like a very different place to them. Every action a person chose had to be carefully considered beforehand, knowing that their eternal judgment was soon at hand. Taking Miller's beliefs as a fact was considered an act of loyalty and devotion to God, and refusing to plan for anything after October 22, 1844, was the ultimate act of faith. But in truth, this act of faith was not in God, but just in a man who claimed this to be so. For 25 years, Miller and his fervent followers had embraced a prophecy divined completely from the Bible. As a true Protestant, Miller read the Bible for himself and did not rely on an authority figure to interpret the meaning for him. Despite his newspaper refuting alternative claims, Miller still encouraged others to interpret the Bible for themselves, so no one person had any true authority over things. Yet, when the Millerites came together in the years preceding the Great Disappointment, it seemed no two interpretations came back the same. Like with the advent of Protestantism, each interpreter shared something new and shocking which did not fit with the wide variety of Christian denominations that already existed. Despite their differences, all had embraced Miller's interpretation as fact as the Second Advent approached, leaving a profound impact on how they saw the world. It's the difference between knowing you're going to die someday and knowing the specific day that you're going to die, or, in the case of the Millerites, live forever in the light of God. The bold confidence that it takes to suddenly come out and predict the year, and eventually the day, of potentially the most anticipated event in the history of Earth, interlocked nicely with the emotional zeal fanning throughout America during the Second Great Awakening. For some, this belief was held for decades, believing it wasn't a matter of trust in Miller, it was a matter of faith in God. So, when the sun rose on October 23rd, 1844, the following months and years left even the most ardent Millerites questioning what had happened to their faith. Most people dropped Millerism and returned to their churches, creating long-lasting divisions between friends and families in the fallout. One man even sued and won to get his property back that he had given away in anticipation for the Second Advent. As for Miller, 
he continued to believe fervently that his calculations were just a few years off at best and continued to espouse this belief until his death in 1849. Whether Miller maintained this belief out of shame, self-preservation, or pure faith will never be known. Those who remained Millerites questioned what had happened, if anything at all, on the date of the Great Disappointment, and generally they broke into three camps. The largest camp believed as Miller did. The event was right, but Miller had just gotten the date wrong, although what the date was now could be anyone's guess. A competing camp disagreed, believing the October 22nd event actually did occur, but only within the hearts of the believers, so there would be no external evidence that this actually happened. A third camp also made itself known, although it was the smallest of the three, and they claimed that the date was right, but that the event that Miller predicted was wrong. This third camp believed October 22, 1844 was special because that was the day of the second phase of Christ's work beginning, an event that had no practical meaning and would leave no discernible effect upon the everyday living of people, thus giving the perception that it was a non-event, despite the belief that it had profound meaning. Looking back today... These three responses could be explained through the psychological phenomena of loss aversion and the sunk cost fallacy. Loss aversion is the human tendency to avoid losses even at the expense of acquiring equivalent gains, and certainly admitting that Miller was wrong all along would have been a loss to the righteous Millerites. The sunk cost fallacy is when a person will continue a behavior due to a previously invested resource, you know, the same feeling someone gets when they purchase a ticket to somewhere they don't really want to go to. Even though they don't want to go, they do it anyway because they had purchased the ticket. Both of these human behaviors have since been well studied and understood to be real psychological phenomena that we can naturally fall victim to at any time, no matter who we are. For the most ardent Millerites, the high likelihood that Miller's interpretation of the Bible was no better than any other amateur or not-so-amateur interpretation was not something many could face directly. Accepting that Miller's interpretation was just incorrect, merely the result of a man's erroneous search for meaning in a text translated several times from a culture that in no way resembled 19th century America, it was just not an option for them. They gave their faith to this prediction. They created rifts within their own families and communities. They altered their life completely for this event that they believed, with all of their love, that Jesus would return. The mere fact that the event hadn't happened did not necessarily preclude that the event didn't happen, or at the very least would not happen soon. To accept that they had been duped, even unintentionally and in good faith, could not be allowed. 
Miller's prophecy brought people together across denominations. It gave them a purpose. It showed them how to live each and every day with the imminent arrival of Jesus omnipresent in their minds. It reaffirmed their faith and it made their passion for living righteously burn white hot. Accepting that all of these life-changing transformations was predicated on a falsehood was too much, and averting this reality was more desirable than accepting it. And at the very least, all true Millerites knew they had built a meaningful community who cared primarily in the salvation after death. They had already invested into the movement and therefore it still must carry meaning because acknowledging otherwise would be acknowledging a cost too great to calculate. After the Great Disappointment, Millerites essentially had invested far too much spiritual capital and time. The sunk cost was just too great. It was better to embrace Miller's prophecies in some reorganized way and take what was gained in the process rather than admit the possibility of overstepping in their eagerness to prove their piety. Chapter 5, Part 4, A Crossroads in Adventism The belief that William Miller was right in one form or another, be it metaphorically, physically, internally, externally, or temporally, was affirmed by those who still believed in the years and decades following the Great Disappointment. This loose agreement by continued Millerites gave rise to a coalition called Adventism, believing that the second coming of Jesus Christ was close at hand in one form or another. But the similarities between the fractured Millerites ended there, as they each interpreted the non-event of 1844 in their own way from the background of a variety of denominations. For example, Samuel Snow, the man who originally prophesied the October 22, 1844 date, continued to preach of the Second Advent coming well after the date had come and gone, unperturbed by the fact that he was wrong. He became increasingly more radical as time went on as well. He was dismissed by a church, and ultimately Snow called himself Elijah the Prophet and Jesus' Prime Minister. But the followers of Samuel Snow did not form into their own denomination like other Adventists did that came from the Millerite movement. Snow was just one competitor against countless others who claimed to be the American prophets of Christianity. Ellen Gould was a Methodist who was kicked out of her church for believing in Miller's prophecies, and after the Great Disappointment, she claimed that God had given her visions. A non-denominational minister from the heart of the burned-over district believed Ellen and her visions from God and married her. Images of them together resemble the plaintiveness of Grant Wood's famous American Gothic painting. 
In the following decades, Ellen professed to be continually visited by visions, angels, and even Jesus Christ himself. She was fundamental in creating a new denomination known as Seventh-day Adventism, which holds the Sabbath as truly sacred. Ellen Gould White became a true prophetess for the Seventh-day Adventists by living simply, helping others, and promoting vegetarian diets, which is a belief that has been held as holy since at least the Middle Ages. She also wrote about communing with God. Her followers point to some of her prophecies as coming true as evidence that she had the gift of divine communication, going as far as to claim that she had predicted the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco, the two world wars, and the harmfulness of tobacco. Yet her predictions are also vague or common sense enough that, like using the Bible to create prophecies, a variety of interpretations could be made from them. She became one of the most translated authors in history, and the Smithsonian considers her to have been an even more influential religious figure than William Miller himself. Seventh-day Adventists have over 20 million followers across the world today. Another important Adventist, Charles Taze Russell, was born after the Great Disappointment, so he did not experience the anticipation leading up to that big day. However, at 20 years old and frustrated by the more traditional forms of Protestantism and turning away from Presbyterianism and Congregationalism, Russell came to encounter some Adventists and was driven by the Spirit to decode the Bible, in the same way that Miller had been. Quickly, he picked up studying the Bible, translating Hebrew and Greek versions, and teaching Bible classes. He organized with a man from Rochester to share his discoveries, and by 1876, he had come to a conclusion that mirrored Miller's in many ways. Russell claimed Jesus had actually invisibly returned to earth in 1874, and Russell prophesied that the end times would occur in 1878, just two years into the future. Not deterred by the Great Disappointment of 1844, many once again followed Russell's prediction, another chance to demonstrate blind faith in action. Then, when another disappointment occurred in 1878, Russell changed the date to 1881, and when that failed, he finally called for the end to occur in 1914. As dates came and went, the intricacies of Russell's prophecies became more complex, claiming that each date had a very special Christian meaning, but what exactly that meaning was wasn't something Russell articulated enough to ever technically be considered wrong. This was enough to imbue his followers with a feeling that Russell was onto something and that he only needed a little bit more faith to bring everyone together, causing several denominations to spring from his leadership, including the Jehovah's Witnesses. The over 8 million members of the Jehovah's Witnesses today are far more focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ than almost any other denomination regularly making predictions that fail 
and captivated by the same allure that transfixed William Miller and his followers back in the early 19th century. Multiple smaller Adventist denominations also grew out of William Miller's movement as well. So, was the Great Disappointment of 1844 as truly a non-event as it initially appeared to both those within and outside of the Millerite movement? As most of the followers slunk away and moved on after October 22, 1844, and the most devout were left to wonder what was next, it forged a new brand of Protestantism rooted in prophecy. Samuel Snow, Ellen Gould White, Charles Taze Russell, and countless other lives were irrevocably changed because of the prophecy of William Miller. Miller treated the Bible literally and predicted a divine phenomenon to occur in physical reality on a specific date, an assertion so grand that it essentially was guaranteed to fail from the outset. Yet his earnestness, coupled with the craving for it to be true by tens of thousands of followers, made his prophecy self-fulfilling. Something clearly did happen on October 22, 1844, and it was conjured from nothing but a few cherry-picked points from the Bible. It planted the roots of a variety of Protestant denominations that over 30 million people follow today, with prophecy still as a central focus in each brand. Cryptic language and false dates by average people who claim to communicate with God has become coveted gospel and truth to those who believe in the various forms of Adventism. Yet, these same people cast a suspicious eye upon those who are critical of their leaders after a variety of failed prophecies and no discernible results. Significant efforts are taken by Millerite descendants to call out the falseness of one denomination while taking pride in another that may have equally wild claims. What can be learned from Millerism about the prophecy-making ability of mankind? Has it truly illuminated a divine path, or is it proof in the unreliable nature of the human ability to predict God's will? If William Miller could actually see into the future that his movement did not truly warn people of a second coming, but instead created a variety of denominations focused on unfulfilled and conflicting prophecies, would Miller have still shared it all with his church on that fateful day? Did the Millerite movement clarify and unify the teachings of Christianity, or was it just another fracture? convoluting understanding in the Christian prism. Listening to this episode of No Character Limit. 
every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast, as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.